We're going to try something on communion Sundays for a time. And that is to look at issues according to the, the teaching of Jesus. It's something that, that uh, is often done, frankly, in liberal circles. In, in liberal churches, they, they very much want to talk about what Jesus says about something like homosexuality because he didn't say anything about homosexuality. They want to ignore Paul and they want to ignore the law but they'll focus on Jesus. They'll focus on the words in red. Um, so we want to actually look at what those things are. Well, if, if we're going to start that, the, to me, the only sensible place to start is to start by looking at Jesus according to Jesus. What did he say about himself? How do we know that what we proclaim as the gospel is actually what the Lord intended when we proclaim him as as god and king how do we know that that's actually what he intended we can we can look at at the epistles and from a biblical point of view all scriptures god breathed there's not different levels but when we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers and especially if we're sharing the gospel with with religious liberals we'll often hear them say but did jesus say that so let's talk about some of the things that jesus had to say about himself. Um, The world wants Jesus to be simple. They don't want him to be complicated. They want to say Jesus lived a simple life. Jesus preached a simple message. The truth is that there is nobody on the face of the earth ever more complex than Jesus of Nazareth. He was fully God and fully man. He did not lead a simple life. He did not give a simple message. He touched on uh, a significant number of different issues that can't be boiled down to the golden rule and the great commandment. He had more to say than that. There are hundreds of references in the New Testament to teaching and to preaching. Uh, The epistles, in fact, from, uh, from the book of Romans all the way through the letter to Jude are almost nothing but doctrine and application of that doctrine. Every once in a while, you have something like, like what you see in 2 Timothy 4, where Paul says to Timothy, come before winter, bring my cloak, bring the parchments. Send pictures of the kids, that kind of a thing, very personal comments. But the vast majority of the time, what we have in Scripture is teaching. Um, Jesus is not simple. He's complex. Now, people have remade Jesus since the very beginning. We're going to see in in the first passage we look at this morning how people were already misunderstanding Jesus before he'd ever been crucified and and what he said to correct that. Uh, In our time, to Mormons, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. To Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is a God, a created being, Michael the archangel. I was reading last night that The Watchtower Society teaches that Jesus was Michael, the archangel, up to the incarnation. He stopped being Michael. He became Jesus. And then with his resurrection, he stopped being Jesus and became Michael again. So from their point of view, there is no more Jesus. Jesus was just there for this little blip of time. To Scientologists, Jesus is just a guy with some good ideas, but not very high on their rating. In fact, they would say that 
the average Scientologist with a lot of money to spend who's cleared a lot of levels is higher than Jesus ever was. Others changed Jesus' ministry. So in the modern charismatic movement, Jesus' focus is on defeating sickness and poverty and making it possible for people to live their best life. Now, to the theological liberals, Jesus ends social justice or ends social injustice and oppression. To postmodernists, Jesus is an experience to have and, and something that you kind of feel on the inside. We want to know what Jesus has to say about himself. And what I've done... Uh, With the understanding, of course, here's the caveat. Because Jesus is the living word of God, because all scripture is God-breathed, the only way to really understand who Jesus is is to begin at Genesis 1 and go through Revelation 22. But we're just going to look primarily at the words that Jesus gave us himself, and we're just going to look at three broad areas, um, who he is, why he came to earth, and what he did and continues to do. So, who is Jesus Christ? Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 16 with me. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, who had been put to death by this point. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, if you think about this, just think about John the Baptist. Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. John the Baptist baptized Jesus. John was beheaded by King Herod because he dared challenge Herod on his adultery. Um, How could anybody, knowing anything about either man, say that Jesus is John the Baptist? Just to make the point, when people have a, a bone to pick with the identity of Christ, their beliefs don't have to make a lick of sense. They can be completely irrational, and they'll hang on to them. So those are the cultural guesses. The people had their guesses about who Jesus was. They're cultural guesses, but they're not educated guesses. No first century Jew would have said that Jesus was a reincarnation of Adam Adam or Melchizedek or Buddha. They, They guessed within their frame of knowledge, but they're just guesses. Well, Peter gives an answer. Jesus says in verse 15, to his disciples, to them, but who do you say that I am? You told me what the people think. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It seems like a simple answer. It's not a simple answer. It's actually a, uh, an extraordinarily rich answer. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the man God promised to send in the Old Testament scriptures. He is the man who is the prophet greater than Moses from Deuteronomy 18. He's the man who would be born of a virgin, live a sinless life, die die as a sacrifice for the sins of his people, be buried, be raised again from the dead. Uh, A man who would be man and God. That's the Christ. That's the Messiah. As you chase down all of those prophetic 
statements in the Old Testament. I've got a really thick book that's very hard for me to get through called um, Messianic Prophecies in the Old Testament. And it's extraordinarily detailed. God doesn't say in the Old Testament, by the way, one of these days I'll send a Messiah. Now let's go on to talk about other things. It's the primary message of the Old Testament is leading up to who this person is and what he would be like. Peter also says that Jesus is the son of God. This isn't just a human being like we are all sons of God. It's a specific title. And it tells us that Jesus himself is God. Jesus himself is Yahweh. And we see that in the Gospels. We see it in in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. So he attributes or equates son of God with miracle power. And not just any miracle power, but a change of essence, really a creative kind of power. Jesus' disciples in Matthew 14, 33, worship him as the son of God. The Jews never would have worshipped anybody but God himself. If, if there is anything, any single issue that led to the captivity in Babylon 700 years before the life of Christ, it was idolatry. And when they came out of Babylon, every system that was created, the Sadducees and the Pharisees both, were aimed at preventing idolatry from ever happening. It's why the, the Pharisees ended up saying there are 613 laws in the Old Testament, and you have to obey every single one of those laws every day. It was their way of saying, this is how we prevent ourselves from falling into idolatry. We regulate every move of your life and every word that you say, and you'll, you'll never be an idolater. And of course, they turn their lack of idolatry into an idol. Gabriel told Mary that Jesus would be wholly the son of God because he would be conceived by the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Jews condemned him to die because they said he, may has, he has made himself the son of God. They understood that son of God meant God, meant equal to God, meant the same essence, the same nature. So when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he says, you are the man God had promised to send and you are God himself. See, that's not a simple answer. That's a very, very complex answer. Now, what does Jesus say in response? Verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Do, Do you notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for suggesting that he is God? What we see in the book of Revelation with John John receives these visions from, uh, from angels. And in Revelation 19 and also in Revelation 22, John says, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, worship the angel. And the angel said, You must not do that. And that's, you must not do that. That's five words. And in the Greek, it's two words. Don't do it. Do it being one word. Don't, don't make it. Don't do that. Stop it. I mean, it's absolutely short. There's no way to say stop it any briefer, any more forcefully than the angel said stop it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So Jesus doesn't rebuke 
his disciples for suggesting that he's God. To the contrary, he affirms it. Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Peter, or Jesus not only says that Peter's answer is the right answer, which is where he is teaching us this morning about himself. Jesus also says, and there's no way, Peter, you could have known this except God showed you. I've listened to debates between Christian theologians and Muslims. Muslims like to bring up this verse. They like to quote this. Who are you? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Not God. And they say, see, Jesus doesn't say, or Peter doesn't say, you're Christ, you're God. He says, you're the Son of God. They quote it all the time. Jews do the same thing. They want to create that difference. See, God and his son are two different people, two different persons. You're saying there's two gods. No, you don't understand the Trinity. My point here is that people can read these words. They can even read them out loud and not understand them and not believe them. The only way to understand them and believe them is if God the Father and God the Spirit do the work of opening our hearts and opening our minds. People are going to have a belief about Jesus. Nobody's neutral about him. People are going to have an opinion. They'll say that he's John the Baptist. They'll say he's Elijah, Jeremiah. They'll say he's a good man. Those are all incorrect beliefs. Other people can have a right doctrine of Christ. They can have a right belief. They can say the right words and yet deny him by their lives. This is the the warning to us, the danger to us. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? He goes on and says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Taking this as as far as we can in terms of understanding the picture, the house is your life. The foundation of your house is what you build your life upon. The storm that comes is judgment. Those who build their lives on the word of Christ, heard and obeyed, are like people who build their house on solid rock. And when the storm of judgment comes, you won't fall. You're going to get wet. The winds are going to blow. Don't think for a minute that you and I will stand before God and he will say, you never committed any sin. What he'll say is, my son bore my wrath against you. And I have dressed you in his righteousness. It's not your righteousness, it's his. And so come in, my child. I've made you my own. But, Jesus says, the one who hears and does not do them, the one who hears his word and does not do them, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the person who hears the word of Jesus. Now, this this isn't... 
This is an og living off in the jungle of Papua New Guinea somewhere. This is the good, solid, moral, religious person of our time. They hear the word of Jesus and they nod their heads, and, but they refuse to obey. It, 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 there's no fruit in their life from the scripture. And Jesus says to the, the person, remember the first statement, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? The person who calls him Lord, Lord, but doesn't do what he tells him, Jesus says, you're, you're like a man who's building your life on nothing. And when judgment comes, you won't survive. You won't survive. So who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you act like Jesus is? The second question that that we we want to let Jesus answer is, why did he come to earth? If you'll turn over to John chapter 6. Now, you might come up with a better reference to answer this question, why did Jesus come to earth? That's awesome. Put it down. Put it down in your notes. I had about 15 different passages, and I can't read them and study them all, so I had to pick one. Starting in verse 33, not verse 35, Jesus says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is Jesus. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. By the way, how do you come to Jesus? You believe in him. That's what he says here. Coming to him and believing him are are the same thing. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, here it is, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's why Jesus came, was so that sinners would have eternal life, so that those who look on him and believe, and as we saw in Luke chapter 6, act on that belief, would have eternal life. Eternal life is in Christ. Those who believe in him will never hunger or thirst for eternal life. He will never cast them out. For any reason, it's the will of God the Father that everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life and Jesus will raise them up. That's God's will. Jesus never disobeyed God. He won't fail to raise you from the dead if your faith is in him. He'll do that because that's the Father's will. Now, it's so important that we understand that Jesus didn't play games with people, that he taught openly, And he worked openly. He didn't have any secret backroom meetings with knowledge that people had to figure out. He spent three years revealing himself virtually every day that we know in every town, city, and village of Israel. He really worked hard. If you think about his teaching and his miracles to show people clearly who he was. There's no game playing. 
It's not hard to see. The problem is never that Jesus is mysterious. The problem is that Jesus is offensive. He gave his life as a ransom on the cross for sinners. It's not hard to understand. It's really hard to accept. We want to hang on to some idea that I'm worth something. He died for me because I deserve or I'm worth something. He died for you because of his grace and mercy. And that's really good news. Anyone who can, who can stand up and say, I deserve no good thing. I deserve only judgment. If God gave me what I deserve, I would spend eternity in hell. But by God's grace and God's mercy, he has given me life. That person has a huge advantage because eternal life came as a gift of God's grace and mercy. It'll never be taken away. If eternal life came to you because you deserve it, what happens when you don't deserve it anymore? If it came because, you des- because you're lovable, what happens if God decides you're not lovable? If it came because you, you went through the right rituals, the right motions of how to become a Christian, what happens when you stop doing that? Salvation is by grace or there's no other way to be saved. In fact, Jesus says in John 8, John 8, John 8, John 8, John 8. I passed it, didn't I? Some of you saw it and didn't say, stop. Oh, you can shout out anytime I'm wrong, please. This is what Jesus says. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. What we want to say in our human way of thinking is the way that you become a person of God is you hear the words of Jesus. Jesus says you won't hear the words of God until you belong to me. We want cause and effect to work in our benefit. We want to be in control. Jesus says the Pharisees not if you listen to my words, you'll become people of God. But the reason you refuse my words is because you're not people of God. So there's three people that kind of exist. There's, there's the person that hears and understands and believes and lives by the revelation of Jesus Christ, by the gospel. If that's you, praise God. Give God the glory. Your faith is is in what the word of God says and in Jesus Christ. Your obedience is to the word of God. The fruit of your salvation is that transformation within your life. Are you going to continue to sin? Of course you're going to continue to sin. Of course you're going to continue to sin. But what do you do with that sin when you've committed it? You wear it as a flag and wave it around? No, the Holy Spirit convicts you. And you turn away from that sin and you confess it. See, that's also an act of obedience. If if sin is disobedience from God, repentance and confession are the acts of obedience that bring us back into obedience to God. And we do so out of faith, not because we have to earn God's favor at any time, but because we have received it. And because his spirit pours out such love upon us that he won't leave us alone. So that's the first kind of person, the one who hears, understands, and believes and lives by what Jesus said, learning to grow over time. 
The second type of person is the, the person who hears the gospel and it makes no sense. And that really troubles them. It really bothers them. And that's really good. Either that's a person who is very new to the faith and very untaught and they just don't get it. But as the word of God is taught, they understand more and more. Or that's the person who is not a Christian. But the Holy Spirit in that discomfort, in, in that, that, that unease, I hear it, but I don't get it. And that bothers me. That's likely the Holy Spirit saying, so believe it. Submit your life to Christ. Bow your heart. Bow your head to the Lord Jesus. Bow your knee to him. And call out to him for salvation. Understand the truth that if you belong to him, you will understand. Not instantly. Not everything at once. I'm a Calvinist. Just in case you didn't know. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in divine election. I believe in predestination. They're biblical terms. We see them. We see God choosing from the very beginning all the way through the very end. But I'm not a Calvinist because I read a little two-page tract on Calvinism and, and thought, I like that. I'm a Calvinist because years and years and years ago, 20 years ago, I spent hundreds of hours studying salvation in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And I never found a, a single place where somebody came to God and said, you have not been looking for me, but I want you. Instead, I found places where people who had no interest in God at all are suddenly tapped on the shoulder and belong to him. And so you can understand, but that doesn't mean the understanding is automatic or free. Sometimes we have to work for it. If you hear the gospel and you don't understand it and that bothers you, that's a good thing. Call out for salvation. Call out for understanding. The third person is the person that terrifies me. That's the person who hears the gospel and doesn't understand it and doesn't care. They hear the word of God preached. They hear the gospel presented. Billy Graham just died. Billy Graham preached to I don't know how many millions of people. And there's a lot of discussion about how he did what he did and whether it's the appropriate thing to go forward or to raise your hand. I, I served at, as a counselor during the evangelism sessions at, at several Promise Keepers conferences, for those of you who are old enough to remember Promise Keepers. And we were told people are going to come down. About half of the people who come down are Christians who are convicted over their sin and they want to get their, right life, their, their, their life right with God. Pray with them. Another 25% don't know why they're there. They, they've had some kind of an emotional experience. They've been moved by the music or by the message or by the testimony because there's always a couple of testimonies. And they don't know why they came down to the field. Give them some materials and send them on their way. And, and about 25% will say, I heard the gospel. I'm not a Christian. I want to be a Christian. And that's who you're focused on. And that's basically the practice that the Billy Graham Crusades had. 
They recognized that many people coming down didn't know why they were there. They didn't try and give them the reason. They just blessed them with some materials and sent them on their way. Many were coming down as Christians who knew that they'd not been walking with the Lord. They prayed with them to rededicate their lives to Christ and sent them on their way. But the person who could look you in the eye and say, I'm not a Christian and I want to be, is the person you talk to and you share the details with. Well, this is talking about, what I'm talking about is the person who hears the gospel and it doesn't make sense and they don't care. It doesn't bother them. They're not worried about it. I'm, I'm terribly frightened for those people. There's no clearer definition of spiritual death than being absolutely unmoved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing that you and I have as Christians that can wake anybody up. All we can do is pray. And we have to pray with the confidence that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have focused all of their combined energy, if you will, since creation on the salvation of the lost. That he wants to save the lost people you love more than you do. Has to be his choice, has to be his work, but his love is poured out. So pray for those people. Don't stop praying for those people. Who is Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully man. Why did he come to earth? He came to earth to save sinners. What did Jesus come to do? I, I found just doing a search for the words come, came, send, and sent. I come so that I came so that I was sent. I, the Father uh, sends me. There are hundreds of verses that come up just in the Gospels. I'm just going to give you five broad areas to consider. The first is that Jesus came to fulfill the law of God. He didn't come to set it aside. He came to fulfill it. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And until heaven and earth pass away, that's not happened yet. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. A dot is, is what is added to the Hebrew letter S that determines whether it, it's... Have you had Hebrew, Justin? Okay, good. Good, so if I mispronounce it, nobody will rebuke me. The, the Hebrew letter S is either S or SH, depending on the placement of a dot. It's either swa or schwa, I think. Although maybe the dot is the schwa. But that's, that's the only difference. Jesus says in the whole Old Testament, 39 books, not one of those little dots will be removed by God. Not one. And he said he came to fulfill that. He said more, though. He said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice he doesn't say cancels a commandment. He just says relaxes it, just rewords it. Is least in the kingdom. Whoever does them, doing them is important and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus came to fulfill the law, he also came to require that we fulfill the law as well, that we recognize the authority of the law. How do we do that? We do that because he did it. 
We do that because his righteousness becomes our righteousness, because he's obeyed for us. But don't think that because Jesus obeyed, thou shalt not commit adultery for you, you're free to commit adultery. It's still sin for us to commit sin. Second, Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Luke chapter 5, verse 32. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's really interesting. Jesus never criticized sinners. He never criticized sinners once. He rebuked them. He called them to repent. But he never walked up to a group of drunks and wagged his finger at them for being drunks. He never avoided people because they were tax collectors. There was an accusation that was made against him several times by the Pharisees. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. Well, it's not a very good accusation because he did it openly. It's not like that was some secret thing that he had going on. Yeah. Well, and that's, see, my example this morning was, Justin's wearing a pink shirt. It's like, Justin is 6'6 and 300 pounds. You can't miss Justin in a crowd of buffalo. And when he's wearing a pink shirt, he stands out. It's not much of an accusation when you're pointing out what somebody does openly. But when it came to religious hypocrites, Jesus had nothing but rebuke and criticism and condemnation. See, these are the people who assume that God was just like them. And that if Jesus was from God, he wouldn't hang around with sinners and tax collectors because God doesn't like those people. God likes us. This is the attitude Jesus talked about. He talked about a a comparison between a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray. And the tax collector goes up and he lifts his hands and and, and he opens up his arms and he says, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. I tithe on everything that I have and I keep your law and I'm not like this tax collector over here. And the tax collector won't come close. Instead, he hangs back and he drops his head and he beats his breast in grief and he says, have mercy on me, O God, the sinner, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, now who do you think goes away justified by God? It's not the, it's not the Pharisee. It's the tax collector. So when Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, he's not saying that there are people who are righteous. He's saying that there are people who are so convinced that they're righteous, you can't get through to them. He never called a a group of sinners. You just pause for a second. You don't have to shout anything out, but you just think of the worst group of sinful people you can imagine. Tax collectors, maybe, prostitutes, drug dealers, ISIS, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda. You think of that group. And Jesus never approached that group and rejected them as a group. But when you think about those who are religious and faithless, those who talk a good game, but who have no humility before God and no actual faith in God and no corresponding obedience to God. That kind of hypocrisy, you can't break through. 
Sinners clamored after Jesus to hear his words by the thousands. The hypocrites clamored after him to find more reasons to criticize him. The third thing that Jesus did is he came as a sacrifice for sin. He said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus laid down his life on the cross. We're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Jesus laid down his life on the cross. He gave his life for, for us. He gave his life for me. The reason he did this, it was, is, it was the only way that any of us could be saved from the wrath of God that falls on sinners. God is just. God's wrath toward sin is legal. It's absolute. It's moral. It's part of his character. He will not simply look at any sin and say, well, never mind. Now, Allah, the God of, of Islam, that's exactly how he forgives. Allah forgives simply by saying, ah, never mind. That's how he does it. The Quran tells a story about a man who killed 99 men. And Allah was ready to punish him and then decided, no, oh, well, okay, come into paradise. That's an arbitrary kind of forgiveness that sounds really nice, but there's no justice to it. Which means that Allah is not a righteous God. He might be a nice guy, but there's no righteousness there. But the true God, the God who is, is a God of absolute holiness. He hates sin. He has just righteous wrath against sin. And Jesus came and died on the cross, laid down his life for the sheep, bearing upon himself the wrath of God against each one of us and completely satisfying it. That's that's what the word propitiation means, is satisfaction. When the Bible says he made propitiation, if you have a New American Standard or King James or New King James, it means he made satisfaction. When he said, when Jesus said it, it is finished on the cross, he wasn't saying, I'm done. He was saying the Father is satisfied. We have that promise. Fourth, Jesus came to be the sole focus of saving faith. John 3.16, you know it so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes should not perish but have ever eternal life. Did, did I read that right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. Did I read that right? No. God gave his only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. God sent his son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. See, what I hear from religious people frequently is, is, I believe. God just wants you to believe. No, he wants you to believe in Jesus. God is going to save everybody only through Jesus. If there's salvation for anybody, it's only through Jesus. Jesus goes on, whoever believes in him is not condemned. He doesn't say whoever believes is not condemned. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, Jesus came to be the sole focus of saving faith. That's 
simply the way things are. Whenever Jesus is shifted from the center of salvation, from the focus of salvation, the gospel becomes a false gospel. So centuries and centuries ago, before the the first millennia, Roman Catholicism shifted the focus from Jesus to the sacraments. Salvation comes through the sacraments, not through the person of Christ. Now, in in a sense, if you use language this way, we're going to celebrate a sacrament today. But that's not the reason that we're saved. And it has no power to save us or to transform us in any way. That's purely on a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Other religions shift the focus to baptism or pronouncements by some other church body. But all of those shift the focus away from the Lord Jesus. Fifth, Jesus came to command absolute faith and loyalty. He says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. If he just stopped Matthew right there, if that was the end of the gospel, our response would be to fall to our knees and say, you are Lord, you are king, you're the master, I'm the slave, you command and I'll obey. That's what all authority in heaven on earth means. Jesus said, this is, how you're, this is what you're going to do because I have authority. You're going to go to every nation and make disciples. How are you going to make disciples? Well, you're going to baptize them. The New Testament picture of baptizing is baptism follows faith. So you're going to have to preach the message of the gospel. Those who believe you're going to baptize, and then you are going to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. I'm still learning what Jesus has commanded. I'm still learning the details. And there are things that I know that he commanded, but now I have to work out in the day-to-day living of life. There are circumstances that we never thought we would face. And we have to work out our faith in those circumstances. But until we see them, until we face them, we can't. And so we constantly go back to the scripture to say, Lord, what do you teach? What do you command? What do you require? How do I honor you? And by the way, Lord is not his first name. It's his title. To call him Lord and to not obey him is to insult him to his face. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, the loving, good, faithful, merciful, just, righteous Savior. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we celebrate his sacrifice for us. He didn't die for us because we deserved salvation. He died for us because apart from that, we would be eternally condemned. And he showed his love in a three-dimensional picture as he hung on the cross. He showed his love in living color, as uh, they used to say on TV, the blackness of our sin washed away by the scarlet flood of his own blood, revealing white purity come let us reason together god says through isaiah though your sins are as red as scarlet they're bloody they're gory they shall be white as snow and his love is shown to us in the the free access we have to the the bread and the cup they're not exotic foods they're not special foods they're not rare the, the, the bread and, and wine, many people perhaps don't have wine in their house anymore, but in Jesus' day, it was everywhere. It was their version of bottled water. There's no soda, there's no coffee, there's no tea, there's no 
iced tea, there's no sweet tea, there's no peach tea. You've got water, much of which was contaminated, and you've got a diluted wine, and the wine helped to kill, to kill the bacteria in the water. Everybody had wine and bread at home. Jesus could come, if we lived in the first century, Jesus could come to any one of our homes and have this meal with no preparation because this is what was even served at every meal. Now, in some churches and traditions, if, if you're not a member there, if you're not baptized there, if you're not belonging there, you, you can't take communion. I've, I've been uninvited in different churches that we've visited and that we've been at for weddings and funerals. If you're not part of our confession, stay where you are. You're not welcome. Here, you're welcome. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to pass a test. Your children don't have to pass a test. Parents, it's up to you. But your children don't have to pass a test. If their faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive it. This is the simplest thing that we can do to be reminded of his love, what he gave for us, the price that he paid for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it and the wonder of it and the glory of it. There was a lot to cover this morning. I pray that you would bring to our remembrance this week what we need to remember, what we need to know about who Jesus is, why he came to earth and what he did. Lord, draw our eyes stronger to heaven and to the Lord. Grant us deeper faith today than we've ever had. Grant us more faithful obedience than we've ever exercised. Let us be more like Jesus today as we continue to turn away from the old life and turn toward him. Grant us, Lord, through the power of your word and the power of your spirit, this new life that is constantly pouring out of us. Fill our mouths with the gospel so that we may share it with others who are around us so that they can know the Savior as well. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. As we pause now to examine our hearts for communion, to ask if we're coming in humility, not hiding our sin, but freely admitting our sin to you, coming in the need for a Savior and in deep gratitude that we have a Savior. Lord, help us to examine ourselves that we may take part of this in a worthy way because you are worthy.